never happened to the other fella. Welcome to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast. I am your host, Rob Kelly, from AquamanShrine.net and the Fire and Water Podcast. And with me is a returning guest, the first ever returning guest for the Film and Water Podcast from Radio vs. the Martians, Mike Gillis. Mike, thanks for joining me again. Good to be here. Awesome. Uh, We're here to talk about On Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, one of the James Bond films. Uh, a unique film, but we'll get to all that in a moment. Let me just ask, we'll start off immediately. Mike, where are you in terms of fandom of the James Bond series? And why did you, I should mention, Mike specifically mentioned this one that he would like to cover on the show. Where are you on this particular installment of the, of the franchise? Well, actually, I'm one of those weird people that did not grow up watching James Bond movies. I think I saw part of Never Say Never Again on TV once. I uh, saw part of License to Kill at a Friend's House once. I just knew that's the one with Benicio Del Toro. Right, right. It's like the Scarface uh, Miami Vice ripoff movie. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, but for the most part, aside from those little pieces, and especially things like the Austin Powers movies and places where it's almost impossible not to know about James Bond because other shows reference it, everything from The Simpsons and... I was not somebody who actually grew up watching these movies. So for me, it wasn't until we decided that we actually wanted to cover James Bond as a topic on Radio versus the Martians that I actually made the effort to sit down and watch all 24 of these movies. Wow. So, I mean, this is something I'm coming to starting like a year ago. And I watched all 24 of them in like the months leading up to us doing that episode. And this one, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is the sixth James Bond movie, was the one I was really looking forward to watching while watching those movies. Because this is the, the weird James Bond movie. Right. I, it's got a reputation as, I think unfairly, being a bad James Bond movie or a weird James Bond movie. Because it's the only one starring George Lazenby. He's the only actor that ever played the role just once. And he wasn't asked back. And 
because of that, I think that's the cloud over this movie, that people just assume that it must be bad. So I just really had to see what that was all about. So it actually came out being something that's got to be at least in my top five, if not top three, James Bond movies that I watched. And I think that a lot of people have sort of gotten that sense, too, because over the years, I think people have revisited it. And uh, it's creeping up into a lot of top ten lists. A lot of people really like this movie, and I think that once they go back to it, and once they go back to the idea of, yes, it's not Sean Connery, yes, it's not Roger Moore, they have kind of fallen in love with it after the fact, and I think it's kind of gratifying. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. In contrast to you, I did grow up with the James Bond films. I, I saw them as a kid. My dad took me to them. I think the first one I can remember seeing is... It might be Moonraker, which is not a good one to start with, oh, but, uh, but you know, what, what the hell. Um, but we saw uh, I, Moonraker and For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, View to a Kill. I think that might I think that might have been it, which is why Roger Moore is my James Bond. I know that a lot of people find that to be heretical, but he is. He's my James Bond, and, and my favorite uh, Bond film is For Your Eyes Only, even though I know that that isn't necessarily one of the best ones. Uh, but this is, yeah, this is one that when I went back, you know, in the days of video stores and started going back and watching the Connery ones, this one was the weird James Bond movie. And for anybody who doesn't, isn't familiar with, with this film, basically after the last film, which was uh, You Only Live Twice, Sean Connery said, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, he had managed to break off into other films and he just, he, he had apparently such enmity with uh, the producer Cubby Broccoli that they weren't even on speaking terms during the filming of that movie. So yeah, I know that there was actually an interview during the 80s when he came back to play James Bond for another producer, like an off-brand Bond right, movie. Right, for Never Say Never Again, yeah. That the interviewer actually asked him who his favorite Bond villain was. Yeah. He said, he said producer Cubby Broccoli. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, we all have our things, but a lot of the stuff I've seen of Sean Connery, he kind of seems like a dick, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, these films did make him a household name. And it's like, how angry at Cubby Broccoli could you have been? But whatever. So anyway, at the end of, at the end of um, You Only Live Twice, Connery didn't want to do it anymore. So they did an open casting call. And this male model, this Australian male model walked in. Named George Lazenby had had no acting experience outside of commercials, and he apparently just sort of struck them as the right guy, and so they uh, they gave him the role. He stories seem to be conflicting about whether they didn't ask him back or he purposely bailed on it because there's a whole story about where his his attorney apparently said to him. This series is going to be is going to be out of date and old hat as we're heading into you know the Easy Rider world, and you know let, why don't you bail on this before you, before it gets bad? Which that doesn't seem plausible. I don't believe any lawyer would ever say to his client, "Turn down James Bond." That that seems completely implausible. But for whatever reason, Lazenby did not return. They offered Sean Connery a million dollars to come back. For Diamonds Are Forever, which at the time was just an extraordinary sum for a movie. He came back, did one more, got pissed off all over again, <laughs> then <laughs> bailed again, and then they got Roger Moore, and then it went on. But Lazenby was the, you know, uh, on the posters and stuff, they de-emphasized that it was Sean Connery as James Bond, and it was just James Bond. That was, And so that was, you know, it was with Lazenby was the beginning of the idea that Bond could be replaced and you could have different Bonds throughout the generations. And obviously that's proven to be true. Um, 
So I went back and saw this movie on video many years ago, and uh, I remembered liking it. I didn't love it. It's it's a weird film, but again, we'll get into that. But I, I liked it, but didn't love it. And then over time, the more I've thought about it, I was like, well, that was really pretty good. And then when Netflix started getting the James Bond movies, uh, I started watching them all over again, and I just went, oh, my God, this is a great movie. This is, I mean, the weak part of it is probably Lazenby. But, yeah. even, but even he's not that bad. No. And the rest of the film is so good uh, that it you kind of get by. And you kind of get by with Lazenby being who he is. I mean, the villain in this piece, I mean, the cast is amazing. We've got uh, Diana Rigg as the love interest, uh, Tracy, which is, you know, she's probably the best Bond girl there ever was. Cause she oh, gives, without question. Yeah, she without gives as question. good as she gets in this movie. I mean, she is, she's, she kicks ass. Uh, I mean, she, and she's the actual, she's the, the one Bond girl that sort of gets James Bond on the hook. He falls in love with her for real. And of course the villain played by, is Blofeld, played by... <laughs> Your Tally favorite, Savalas. your favorite, Tally Savalas. <laughs> He's such a badass in this movie. He makes evil look so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean they recast it from the previous film because Blofeld is in the previous James Bond film played by Donald Pleasance, uh, but this Blofeld is a much more of a hands-on kind of ass kicker kind of guy, and so they decided to recast it and went with somebody of a little more of a muscular kind of disposition, which is definitely Tally Savalas. Um, so, I mean, the super overview of the plot, just to get in for, again for anybody who hasn't seen it. And I don't know, Mike, should we spoil the ending? I mean, should, has anybody, if, if you haven't seen it, should we, should you not listen? I don't know. Can we, can we I talk about this film without spoiling the ending? This movie came out in the same year as the moon landing. So I think it's pretty safe <laughs> to spoil the movie. We're on the moon. What? <laughs> what? Um, I did Spoilers! Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's safe to spoil it because I think that the ending is actually one of the most interesting things about it. It's what sets it apart tonally from the other ones. Well, that's true. Because almost every other James Bond movie has this sort of triumphant, you know, sort of finale. And it says James Bond will return in in the name of the next movie. This one does not have that. It actually has to give the ending a bit of space to breathe with quieter music before it starts bringing in the Bond theme to get you that sort of triumphant end. But it is a dark ending. It's like a Beneath the Planet of the Apes type ending. Where <laughs> it's or like they don't want to jump to credit music. They kind of want to let this moment just sort of sit there for a while and sink in. Yeah, I mean, basically, so the plot of it is James Bond is contacted by this underworld boss named Draco, who wants him to marry his daughter, Tracy, because yeah. uh, he's, he thinks Tracy's this wild woman, and he talks about how you have to tame her, you have to bet her down. I mean, he's, he's an interesting dad. He's and a very progressive guy. Very progressive. Well, I guess so. I mean, so uh, he uh, James Bond meets Tracy, played by Diana Rigg, and he actually does fall for her. He runs into her in the actually the beginning of the film when she tries to kill herself and he rescues her. And they ended up they end up falling in love. He then uses Draco to get in con to to find his way to Blofeld, who is staging this whole thing involving um this the secret of course he's got a secret base. He's got a secret mountain base where he is basically working on kind of a germ warfare thing and he is threatening to unleash this on the world unless he is forgiven all of his crimes to this point uh and also recognized as the official count de blochamp or whatever the hell the french version is of blofeld it's a very weird extortion plot that he's got going 
So anyway, Bond gets involved with Bond goes undercover as uh, Sir Hillary Bray, a guy mm. who, which is a whole other weird angle. Again, we'll get, we'll get into that. Uh, there's of course a big conflict at the end. Tracy fight, Tracy's uh, kidnapped. She escapes, gets kidnapped again by Blofeld. Uh, she pretends that she's interested in Blofeld in a romantic way, so she can give James Bond time to break in and rescue her. They get together. Blofeld is uh, ends up getting his neck cracked when he hits on a branch because he goes down on it. He's a uh, skiing, chasing after James Bond. And at the end of the movie, James Bond and Tracy get married. He proposes, and they actually get married. And M is there, Miss Moneypenny is there, and they drive off, uh, off into the wild blue yonder, and then just the, literally in the last two minutes of the film, Blofeld and his henchwoman, Irma Blunt, drive by, fire a machine gun at James Bond, it misses of course, but it hits Tracy and kills her. And the end of the film is James Bond cradling his dead wife saying, don't worry, we have all the time in the world, which is the, the theme song from the, the film. And the film ends on that, on that note. It ends yeah. on James Bond's wife being murdered. And it is a real gut punch. I mean, they do do the bombast at the end. They, like you said, there is that long pause. And then they do the, brah, brah, and James Bond will be back. But they do let it hang, and it is an, it is an incredibly downer ending for a James Bond film. I mean, you just can't Absolutely. believe it. Like, 90% of James Bond movies, especially with Roger Moore, is always him having sex in an escape pod. (laughs) So it's always something kind of like that when there's always something where High Muckety Muck calls in over the screen and sees him having sex. And he's like, what is he doing? And and then it sort of fades out with something kind of triumphant. This is so not that. The last shot of this movie is the windshield with the bullet hole in it. And... The instrumental version of the Louis Armstrong song, which, by the way, is the last song that Louis Armstrong recorded before he died. That's right. And it's interesting that there are kind of two theme songs to this movie. There's the sort of instrumental action spy theme, which they play throughout, especially with all these awesome ski chases. But the main actual theme of the movie is the love theme. And it's that instrumental theme that plays over the end before we hit that note. And it's just... Not the ending that I think a lot of people expected. It's not, it's a weird moment because you get to see James Bond, who is this guy for five movies, just casually dispatching guys in funny ways and kind of sending them off and watching a human being die and making a joke about it. And he's, with Sean Connery, he's practically a sociopath. He's like a heroic (laughs) sociopath who even women that he beds will just get killed and then he just thinks nothing of it, just move on. Yep. And people try to try to help him, and they get involved. His allies get killed, and he'll even make a joke about that. He seems to be completely blasé about everything. And now, finally, you actually have somebody break through that sort of cynical shell, and he falls in love with them. And then they're gunned down right in front of him. And it's not the sort of you know ending that we're used to getting. And I think maybe this is why the movie has the reputation that it does. Maybe people don't want James Bond to be vulnerable. Maybe they don't want James Bond to, to mourn somebody. And maybe it's, it's not the sort of escapism that they necessarily wanted. And I think that maybe that's why people have sort of kept this movie at arm's length for so long. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, they did refer to the death of, of Tracy Bond in subsequent Bond films. I mean, very, very loosely, but in the opening scene of Free Your Eyes Only, 
which, as I said, is my favorite Bond film. Uh, Bond is visiting the grave of Tracy Bond, and he leaves flowers for her. And then uh, it's also referred to in License to Kill, the Timothy Dalton film. So they, they did keep it within continuity, of course, not the Daniel Craig movies. But, I mean, so they, they, you know, they didn't wipe it out of existence yet, for the most part. Bond just moves on. I mean, in the next film, he's with he's Connery again, and he's banging girls, and then then Roger Moore, he's pulling zippers down with his magnets. I mean, so you know, they it is kind of a weird like this is the film never fully gets into whether this is the same guy we've seen or it isn't. Because there's a little there's a little joke at the beginning right, that is sort of right. him breaking the fourth wall when Tracy runs off. He actually looks at the camera and says, "This never happened to the other fellow." Right, exactly. So it's it's it seems like a gag, but maybe, but yet you know you've got M and Q and Money Penny calling him James Bond. So, mm-hmm. and the fact that you continue to have that connection that he was married once and it ended tragically is something that's carried over. I know there's that fan theory that a lot of people have that each Bond is a different person. Right, James right. Bond's just a code name. But I think those little moments tend to put a lie to that. That Clearly, the producers of the film want this to be the same character, even though the different versions of James Bond are about as diverse as the versions of Batman. That, I mean, technically, Frank Miller's Batman is the same thing as Dick Sprang's Batman. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the elements are sort of there. The, the supporting cast is there. The setting's there. But the tone is completely different. And even though Roger Moore is totally not Daniel Craig, they're both Bond. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of the through line here, which is that this is probably the only movie that has a has a an impact on the plots of other movies in the entire series because everything else seems to be pretty tightly contained. It's like this is just another adventure of James Bond, but this is the one adventure of James Bond that actually changes the character somewhat where they actually address it that yeah, he's still betting girls and killing people left and right, but occasionally you get that little moment of sadness from both Roger Moore and then Timothy Dalton. Right. Yeah, I mean, part of the reputation this film has is that it was like a flop. And first of all, there's never been a James Bond movie that was a flop. I don't think there's ever been one. Uh, this movie was actually a very big success. I think it was like the fifth highest grossing movie of the year. It just wasn't as big a success as some of the other ones. But it does have that reputation as like, oh, that's the one nobody saw, which is completely not true. It's the only film directed by uh, Peter Hunt, who was uh, previously the uh, the stunt coordinator uh, for the for the other films, and he does a superb job. Uh, I mean, this is this film later on has been credited as Christopher Nolan's favorite James Bond movie, and yeah. uh, I haven't seen Inception, but apparently in, there's a lot of Inception that's directly sort of homaged to uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, all the stuff in the snow, and and it seems like the new Bond film that's coming out, Spectre, that all takes place up in the mountains, is going to have a lot of sort of visual references. To one yeah. Secret Service. Actually, I know director Steven Soderbergh actually has a really good essay online that you should check out talking about this movie and how this is his favorite Bond movie, too. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, cool. And uh, he says that, you know, he, as a filmmaker, has always done movies that he has this sort of soft spot for certain movies that he really loves that he's made, but for whatever reason just didn't find the audience or people didn't appreciate them in the way that he felt it. So he said that because of that experience over the years, every so often, that he's always had a real affinity for this movie because he felt like this was that movie for James Bond, the one that didn't get the reputation that it should have deserved and that it's weirdly maligned or ignored. And the weird thing is that this movie is actually 
had a pretty big impact, not just on, on movies in that way and on how we actually film fight scenes, because there's a lot of quick cuts, which is something you never had before right. during fight scenes for James Bond, where normally you'd have a couple you know, close-up shots, but there'd be a real minimal number of shots to a fight scene that you'd be able to follow it at kind of a medium level. There are a couple close shots, like if James Bond's getting strangled or something. But this one is like they're cutting on the action to the next shot, and they're doing it a lot. And it gives that sense of sort of frantic danger and a real urgency to the fight scene. And I think it's something that had a lot of impact on other movies. But another piece of impact this movie had is, I think, on Batman. If you really look at the O'Neill Adams stories from the 1970s, especially the Rajo Ghul ones, there is so much... Uh, sort of globe-trotting adventure. Mm, a lot of, that's lot of true. Stuff, that's true. A lot of stuff in Batman's going into the Alps. And, in, and just like in this movie, Batman has a crime lord trying to get him to marry his daughter. Oh, my is, God. I never even thought of that. Oh, there's ski you chases. Blowing, with, you are blowing my mind, Mike. <laughs> there is so much 1970s Batman, which came, those stories came out like a couple of years after this one. They did. So you, right. you can see so much of that impact. Raja al Ghul is kind of a cross between the Draco character and the Blofeld character in this one, with some other elements sort of mixed in as well. So there's a lot of impact this movie had. Um, I really, when I'm looking at this version of Blofeld, and I've said this before online, because I have this kind of weird, awesome man crush on Telly Savalas' Blofeld, <laughs> he is, he's basically my Lex Luthor. He's the Lex Luthor that I've always wanted to see in a movie. But for whatever reason, the filmmakers always had kind of a different vision from what I wanted. I love this villain so much. And there's so many little elements with him because he's, he's very smooth. He's a great character. He's interesting. He's very classy. Um, and he also holds a cigarette in a way that is just weird. I don't know if you've actually gone back. I was telling you about this. If you watch the way that Blofeld smokes, especially in the scene where he's explaining his plan to James Bond while he's decorating that Christmas tree, which is just awesome. I love the juxtaposition of decorating a Christmas tree while talking about releasing a virus that will make you know entire populations and species go sterile and, and just holding the world hostage and he's just hanging tinsel on a branch. But if you look at the way he's holding the cigarette, he's not holding it the way most people hold a cigarette. He's holding it like a wand. He's holding it between his index finger and his thumb, and it's pointing upward. <laughs> and when he takes a drag on it, it's like he's using an asthma inhaler. And it's like no, nobody had ever showed him how to smoke. He'd never seen anyone smoke before. And he was just given this prop. And he figured out how to do it on his own without any knowledge of how people actually smoked. Yet it looks totally natural when he did it. I didn't notice he did this until like the second time I watched the movie. And I'm like, that is weird. And he does it so consistently. And I, I just love that he's not the Donald Pleasance Blofeld, which is the one that Dr. Evil from Austin Powers is yeah, based on. Yeah where he's sort of the weird Eastern European genius who sort of sits back and orders people to kill Bond, kill him. He's the guy who actually straps on skis and goggles and goes out after him. He's taking a direct hand in the violence. He's much more hands-on, absolutely. He's, yeah, yeah. He is just so goddamn cool. I love this version of Blofeld. It's kind of weird because I know Blofeld has gone through like four or five actors over the course of this series. And if there was anyone I always wanted to see come back to this role, it was Telly Savalas, because he's just so damn good. I don't know why they didn't ask him back. Um, yeah, it's just he's so 
casual about everything. He just he makes everything look really easy. He's got a, a lifestyle of a Bond villain. I mean, throw the evil and you know the holding the world hostage stuff off the table for a bit is incredibly appealing to me. <laughs> the, the idea of living in this like alpine base. With, I think one of the floors kind of rotates. Just the sets in these movies are just absolutely gorgeous. Bunch of uniform henchmen in orange ski suits doing your bidding. That seems pretty friggin' sweet, I've got to say. He's got his angels of death, these 12 incredibly lovely women uh, that he's t- he's mind-controlling while they sleep at night. He's, he's giving them all sorts of speeches as they sleep to hypnotically control them. There's one point where he has this weird monologue about chickens. I love that. that. <laughs> I love that the idea that they've been brought to this this mountaintop retreat is to cure their allergies. And this woman's allergy is to chicken. And the speech is like, you used to hate chicken. You feared chicken. Now you love the chicken. <laughs> you love its flesh. You love its voice. And I'm like, its voice? <laughs> I'm like... So it's like she likes the idea of it clucking now, that that is somehow appealing to her. I love the fact that even though he is hypnotizing them into spreading a doomsday virus, he still cures their allergies. (laughs) It still works. It's like, you know, say what you will about other people. At least, you know, if you look at the thing that they probably signed before they went up to that mountaintop, he still fulfilled the contract, even if he threw some extra stuff in. So you can't really blame the guy. Am I the only one that feels like the angels of death remind me? They remind me a bit of uh, the uh, the Holy Grail virgins from Monty Python when when Sir Lancelot Michael Palin goes to that castle and it's all the girls because they're oh. all they're all kind of giggly and they all sort of want to like have sex with James Bond and he's like, well, I've, I've kind of got business. Although he does take time to bed down one of them, uh, but it, they just reminded me of that. They're all kind of giggly. They've all got the English accents. I just thought. I just, I, I just, I saw that, that that comparison in my mind. I can't help it. That's the part of this movie that watching it again really stood out to me as just bizarre because he's not going there as James Bond as this right. dashing, he's, he's going blase. as Hillary Bray, right? Yeah, he's Hillary Bray, who's basically Clark. He's Clark Kenting it. <laughs> he's going up there. He's playing somebody who's who's pretending to be airsick, who's very nerdy. Who, when they ask him to do curling with them, you know that game that you play where you rush a thing across the ice and then people run in front of it with a broom. Um, he slips and falls. He's he's basically playing uh, a really really uptight British version of Christopher Reeve's Clark Kent. So I don't know if they haven't seen a woman in like twenty years because that's how it comes across. They haven't seen a man for that long, but they're throwing themselves at this weird, nebbish, awkward guy. And it felt like in that moment that the screenwriter must have been that kind of guy in real life. Because <laughs> yeah. it it was it's just weird to see women throw themselves at Clark Kent. I mean, yeah, he still looks like James Bond, but he's got the spectacles on, and he's just going on and on and on about uh, genealogy. And uh, my, uh, my heraldry has four gold balls on it. <laughs> And they're like, ooh, they're just like, it's not like they're bored by it. They're just like enraptured oh, with yeah, him going yeah, yeah. on about the driest of topics. And I'm like, who are these people? How badly did they get hypnotized? Yeah, I mean, in a weird uh, bit of production, in a weird production choice, they dub George Lazenby during that whole sequence when he's pretending to be Hillary Bray by actor George Baker, who plays Hillary Bray in this movie. Uh, and George Baker, the re- I'm like I'm like sort of a weird 
I don't know if it's weird. I love uh, I Claudius, the, the BBC mm. miniseries, and George Baker is in I Claudius. He played Tiberius, and like I just love every actor from I Claudius. When I see them show up in things later on, I'm like, oh, that's that's Livia from I Claudius. So he's this was pre I Claudius, but that's that's George Baker, and he for like a good chunk of the middle of the movie, probably like a good half hour, almost 45 minutes, you're not even hearing George Lazenby's voice. They got George yeah. Baker to dub him, to dub an actor playing him. It's a very weird choice. And it, it again, I think it, it, it helps suggest that like the producers weren't happy with Lazenby that, you know, that you know in the they, middle of the film, they don't even use his voice. They didn't actually tell Lazenby they were doing that. Oh, he actually, he found out at the premiere that he suddenly, in all these scenes that he actually did record dialogue, he wasn't talking. And I think a lot of it was that. Actually, the first time that I watched this movie, I didn't even notice that was done after the fact and dubbed in. I was like, holy shit, maybe I thought this Lazenby guy was, I, maybe I got this guy wrong because th- he's creating a character here. And it's like, the weird thing was that the character of Hilary Bray as performed by James Bond was so much more interesting and popping off the screen and more engaging than Lazenby's James Bond. And I was like, well, holy crap, that character is great. And then I found out after the fact, like, oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was weird because we probably should get into, you know, the thing with Lazenby and how he actually does in the role because to me that's the movie's real weak point is I think he's a serviceable James Bond I think he does action really well. Oh, he does action. The action scenes of this movie are top-notch. Absolutely top-notch. That he's totally believable in those moments. There's a part where Draco has a bunch of his goons kidnap Bond and take him to his office. He doesn't know why they're taking him, but he just beats the crap out of all three of them in a short span of moment and whips through the door with a throwing knife ready to go. That scene looks great. Yeah. He lo- in that moment, he looks like Bond. And the same one, too, where uh, he goes into Tracy's hotel room, and she comes out with the gun, and she has it in his face. And he grabs a gun out of her wrist and twists it and makes her drop it. And the only thing moving is his arm. His face is completely still. He's not reacting. He looks like Bond there. And I wish that moment could happen more often because most of the time it feels like there was a contest and this really big Bond fan got to star in a Bond movie <laughs> with all the Bond cinematography and all the great actors. There's just something about this guy that doesn't pop off the screen. That You look at the other actors, regardless of how you feel about individual James Bond actors, they all share a quality where they feel like a leading man. They all feel like, when, even when they're just sitting in a casino playing cards, that this guy is important. This guy is a big deal. You know, they're not having to do much. You just see it in his eyes. You see it in his body language. And Lazenby just doesn't have that intangible quality. And I can't really quite say what it is. There's moments where he kind of has it for just a split second. He doesn't really nail the one-liners as well. No. I mean, not, no. not every Bond does. Daniel Craig is not really a one-liner guy. He does a lot of things well, and he's one of my favorite Bonds. But he doesn't really do that well in the same way that... Roger Moore doesn't do serious nearly as well. He's, he's really the Adam West Bond. And that's okay. Because you have to do things to, to steer the, the plot and the direction towards what the actor's strengths are. And I don't think we ever really get to see what Lazenby's strengths are aside from the action. That stuff he's top-notch at. It's just the moments when he stops fighting and he has to just stand there being James Bond. And thankfully the movie has, like, Diana Rigg and... Uh, 
Telly Savalas really carrying it, and the plot is really good. But it just feels like a movie that is one of my top five Bond movies with the right Bond actor could have been my favorite Bond movie. Yeah, that's. I mean, a lot of the uh, the reviews I've read of it, the, the the later reviews have all said that they're like, "Boy, this is a really great Bond film." Imagine what it might have been like with Connery or with someone, you know, just someone of a little more heft in the role. And it's, you know, I, I, we'll never know, obviously, but yeah, I, I agree that the, the action scenes of this movie are there's a there's a whole sequence of him inside sort of the gears of this building. Uh, it's like a big Rube Goldberg kind of thing where he's going to get gnarled by these giant sort of, uh, you know, wheels and it's lit beautifully with these nice blues. And there's another sequence of him dangling on a cable car wire as the, as the ski lift car is coming and ready to crush his hands. And they are beautiful sequences and they are, I mean, Peter Hunt was the stunt guy. So you could see why he was, you know, it may have been partly Peter Hunt's fault that he was more comfortable doing action shooting action stuff than he was doing character stuff. And it maybe it required an actor as good as uh, Diana Rigg or Telly Savalas to be able to bring those scenes to life. But when you have somebody as inexperienced as Lazenby, he was just at a loss. You know, he's just like, I, I don't know what to do. So I'll just say the lines and hopefully that'll work out. Yeah, it's too bad. But it's weird because I think that if this movie had been done with Connery, I don't think it would have worked. Because it's not quite the same character as Connery's Bond. It's a more vulnerable Bond. It totally is. You actually see him scared in moments, too. Yes. You, yep. you see him at the end where he's mourning his wife. I can't see Connery's Bond doing that. I can't see Connery's Bond falling in love. Mm-hmm. He just seems so jaded. And I know I can't quite see Roger Moore doing it really as much either because Roger Moore needs a bit more cheese to really shine. <laughs> he... Because if you give him a good, like, I guess you could call it the Silver Age Bond kind of stories where it's just kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of wacky stuff with crazy gadgets and uh, novelty deaths and running across the backs of alligators, which is a real stunt, by the way. That was a real alligator. I really did that, yep. Um, that's crazy. That kind of, they, you kind of want him to be crazy, cheesy Bond. You want everything sort of ratcheted up to 11, where this is kind of a midway point between serious Bond with a bit of cheese, I mean, obviously, Blofeld's plot is definitely high, you know, heightened reality bond, but the tone of the story uh, can be very serious in places. What if Timothy Dalton had been this bond? Because I know he was offered the role, but he turned it down because he was only like 27 at the time. Yeah, I think he was even and, younger than that, actually. Yeah, so he was offered the role of bond, and he didn't actually accept it until he was like 40 in the, the mid 80s. I wonder what this could have been with him because Lazenby's only a couple years older than than Dalton. He was like 30 when he did this movie. I don't know. I think that his Bond, and this is the thing with the the Dalton version of James Bond, is that I think he's great for the role, but he just never got the great villain. He never really got the great plot that he needed to get. He never got his iconic James Bond movie, and I think that the closest he got was The Living Daylights, but it just didn't have a great villain. It didn't yeah. have somebody yep. like you know Christopher Walken or Donald Pleasance or um, any of these actors who have just – even Jonathan Price, all these people who are just these iconic people who have some crazy doomsday plot. He got Jodon Baker. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, he's taking on drug, drug guys, you know, drug runners in those movies. And it's yeah, like drug he's, runners. He's fighting, yeah, not really. So I just thinking – Maybe this could have been his movie. Maybe because he had the right qualities where he can be vulnerable Bond, but he can also be a little bit campy. He can do action really well. 
And I think he could do those last scenes in a way that, say, Connery and, and definitely not Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan's Bond was all over the map. He was trying to be all, all things Bond all at once, where he was trying to be really serious in places, and he was trying to be Roger Moore and others. And that was the it's not, that's not Pierce Brosnan's fault, though. But I think, I think Timothy Dalton might have been the, the element that would have made this my all-time favorite Bond movie. But, you know, again, I, it's not like, you know, Lazenby ruins it. I think he's really serviceable. And the rest of the pieces are so big that it more than makes up for whatever, you know, his problem is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it. It's, it's a bliss. I, I've been having it, – it's the – until Casino Royale, it was the longest of the Bond films. It's a good – over two hours long, like considerably over two hours long. Uh, so, it's, again, it wasn't – if they didn't have a lot of faith in Lazenby, they wouldn't have made the longest film – with him, you know, I mean, they probably would have cut it down. It was the Superman four effect is cut it down before everybody notices how bad it is. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, this film really holds up very well. And it is in my, I don't know if I would maybe top three, but certainly top five. Um, yeah. What are, what are some of the other ones in, in that pantheon to you in terms of the other Tim, films? Uh, Goldfinger. It's kind of like everybody the, says gold. Every, that's always yeah. on everybody's list. Goldfinger. It's like saying Jack Kirby is your favorite comic book artist. It's best to just treat it like a free space because <laughs> it's just going to be there. It's like saying the Beatles is your favorite band. It's like, okay, I, I get it. They're awesome. It's an obvious answer. Give me a more interesting one. We'll just put the Beatles on the list before you give us any answers. Um, Goldfinger really is that. It's the Bond movie that you think all Bond movies are. It's got the laser thing. Uh, Skyfall I really liked okay. a lot. Um, I think that Daniel Craig's movies, um, you know, Quantum of Solace notwithstanding, have been incredibly strong. Casino Royale is great. Yes, I love that. It is such a good movie. I mean, it's amazing. They actually did a foot chase that was incredibly engaging and exciting. Nobody does foot chases anymore. I mean, the characters are great. Daniel Craig's Bond uh, has got an incredible presence I mean, you, he enters a room, and you know he's James Bond. You know this guy's a big deal. Yeah, technically he's undercover as a spy, but that's the last thing a spy wants to do is grab everyone's eye. But, you know, you want somebody more like Wallace Shawn to be James Bond. But, <laughs> you know, I, I really love that about uh, Daniel Craig is that he's got this intense look in his eye. He does action well. I think he's better at comedy than a lot of people give him credit for. But rather than the catchphrase, it's more of he gives a look and a little bit of a smirk yeah. and lets the audience do the rest of the work. Um, so got those ones. Uh, Live and Let Die. Okay, <laughs> I, right. I love the shit out of Live and Let Die. It is such a bonkers movie that it is like a spy movie mixed with a black exploitation movie mixed with a voodoo cult movie. And for 20 minutes, it turns into Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah, right, the fat Southern sheriff, right. <laughs> I'm like, what is this character doing in the Bond movie? It's got that scene where uh, Roger Moore runs across the backs of those alligators, like I mentioned before. That was a real stuntman doing that. Right. They had actually tied the alligators to the bottom. It's like a Mario move. It's, <laughs> oh, it's great. I love that one. So how many have I named? Okay, oh, um... I think that's my favorite Roger Moore one. And you know what I'm going to say? Because you, you mentioned it before. Moonraker. Oh, boy. <laughs> Moonraker is just so goddamn absurd. And it's got, it's got a scene where the villain actually falls out of a plane. His chute doesn't open. And he survives by landing on a circus. It's got laser guns in space. It has the villain Jaws, who had been treated like essentially a cyborg vampire up to this point, like terrifying. He gets a girlfriend, and for some reason, he's always kind of dressed like Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it knows exactly what it is, and it just embraces it. It also has the best 
uh, James Bond sex pun of any movie. Oh, and the I'm att- honestly, att- attempting re-entry, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. How did they got away with that? I have no idea. I can only imagine how mortified my father must have been taking his six-year-old, seven-year-old son to see that movie. I probably was just like, well, I, don't, I don't even know what any of that means. <laughs> That's fine. So I guess for me, my, my kind of bond is all over the map. It depends on what mood I'm in. Sometimes I want serious, gritty bond. And sometimes I just want, you know, Velveeta cheese bond. <laughs> and... I, I have kind of a smorgasbord because you have all the options. If I want something sort of in between. I can choose like a Timothy Dalton. Living Daylights is still a really good movie. That it has a grittier take on Bond, but it still has the iconic gadgets in it. So you can go all over the place. Um, but there's, there really are. Oh, uh, from Diamonds Are Forever, which is kind of a Timothy. It's basically a Roger Moore Bond movie starring Sean Connery. Right. Yep. Which actually has an oh man. My favorite henchman of all time, which is Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. Yes, yeah. That, oh, man. They are actually on my list of top five favorite fictional couples. <laughs> that, that The idea that, I mean, it, it comes from the fact that Ian Fleming, who created these, these characters, was incredibly racist and homophobic. Yes, but, he was. <laughs> um, they actually, it's remarkably subtle, I guess you could say, the idea of having a, a gay couple as assassins. But they don't play up the stereotype. They just kind of come across as oddballs. They kind of come across like that pair of gophers from those Looney Tunes cartoons where they're constantly throwing puns back and forth and finishing each other's sentences. They're kind of, I mean, it's kind of sweet. I mean, it's probably not easy to be openly gay in the early 1970s, but to find like a soulmate who shares your love of puns and murder... That's actually, that's kind of romantic. It's and very I, hopeful. I, that's a very yeah, hopeful thing. <laughs> that they drop a, the, a scorpion down a guy's shirt and kill him, and they blow up a helicopter and walk away kind of calmly holding hands. It's very, it's very sweet. Yeah, Ian Fleming really hated lesbians. Like, in oh. a bunch of his books, lesbians are just like these poorly misguided, you know, ball-busting. And then in Goldfinger... You know, the main woman from Goldfinger, I'm blanking out on her name now, because uh, it's not Pussy Galore. Oh, yeah, Honor Blackman. Honor, oh. Yeah, Honor Blackman. She's clearly supposed to be a lesbian, because she talks about how, dis, you know, they, they keep mentioning how disinterested she is in sort of any sexual relations. And then basically she's turned around by James Bond forcing himself on her. Yeah, and, he just, kiss, just kisses the gay out of her. Yeah, and, and it's I, just like, I, I took my nephew to that movie a couple of weeks ago because they were playing it on the big screen. And at the end of the movie, I said, look, don't don't take any advice on sexual politics from this movie. Please, you know, just that was from 1963. Just 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 enjoy it as escapist fan. He's like, yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah, you kind of have to. That's the thing with the 1960s when you revisit a lot of this stuff is that – and for for me, it's now more of a feature than a bug. Because it's kind of like, you know, casual sexism, you know, racism, um, people just acting like Don Draper type assholes is just kind of a thing. You know, it's like big lapels and, you know, brown checkered suits in the 70s. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of weird because it's just such a cartoon. Captain Kirk, though, he does a lot of that stuff, too. Um, not nearly as bad as James Bond. The Connery Bond was incredibly sexist. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can. It's a, one of my favorite kind of reactions I can get from a movie, which is I laugh, but I'm also uncomfortable at the same time. So I don't know. But anyways, um, 
Oh, God. That's the thing with the, the interesting thing with this movie in terms of what a Bond girl is. Because every single time you have a different James Bond movie and you have uh, an interview with uh, the leading lady, their interview always goes with him explaining how their Bond girl is nothing like the other Bond right. girls. Right, yep, yep. And this is really one of the few movies where that's true. Because Tracy is never kind of a screaming, helpless damsel. You understand why Bond would fall in love with her. She actually rescues him a couple times. That She's actually doing a driving through one of the big action sequences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's actually driving the car away from, um, is it Mrs. Blunt? Or? Yeah, Irma, Irma Blunt. Yeah. Ir- Irma Blunt, uh, driving away from them into the middle of a demolition derby. The car is just getting destroyed, and you can tell that Tracy is having a blast. And even a couple times, she actually throws out one-liners. Yeah. And she clearly enjoys it. This is the one person who can sort of join this weird, crazy life and really be a part of it rather than an impediment or a thing that needs to be rescued. And even at the end where she's sort of pretending to fall for Blofeld, she did it because she heard the, uh, the rescue coming and knows that she has to stall, that she has to create a diversion because the voice she hears over that's pretending to be like a Red Cross helicopter, she hears her father's voice because... Uh, at the end, of course, the world wants to just kind of, you know, uh, give in to uh, Blofeld's plot, give him his retirement, give him all the money he wants, whatever, just don't kill the world. And Bond doesn't want to have anything of that. His bosses aren't helping. So he actually goes to his crime boss father-in-law. <laughs> right. And it's basically Bond plus gangsters versus supervillains at the end. And she hears her father's voice, and she's like, okay, the rescue's coming. Time to do that. And the minute that the shit hits the fan, she immediately breaks a bottle over a dude's head and fights him. She even kills him off this weird piece of art that's on the wall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She just drags him through it, and, like, he gets stabbed in the face with it. Yeah, it's it's like, okay, maybe I didn't think this out. Maybe I shouldn't have... A piece of art that's just spikes on the wall <laughs> that's just nailed there at perfect perfect level for somebody to die on if they just tripped. So I, it's great. I think it's a great movie. She, she takes out like three henchmen. Yeah. And this is exactly the sort of woman Bond would fall for. And Diana Rigg is amazing. And she's still amazing. I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones at all. Yeah, she's wonderful on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. She gets the best line. She is a great actress. Yeah. That she's somebody who can easily stand toe-to-toe with the best of James Bonds. So she's kind of necessary in a movie where you don't really have a strong bond. And uh, she's great. She, she creates chemistry with any actor you throw her at. She's that good, and to have a movie that mostly gets carried by her and Telly Savalas, my favorite Bond villain, it, you just can't lose. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think that's going to wrap it up, Mike. I think we've, I think we've, we, we've uh, waxed this movie's car enough. Uh, for anyone who is listening to this who has not seen it yet, if you're a fan of James Bond at all, like if you're just into James Bond in any sort of way, give this one a shot. You can rent it on iTunes. It used to be it's on the James Bond films show up on Netflix like every other month and they're gone for a month. But seek it out. It's well worth your time because it is really, really enjoyable. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just super a lot of fun. And uh, again, I think it's very instructive that the new Bond film seems to be taking a lot of its cues from this film. Uh, I mean, they haven't said it, but it seems pretty clear that what's his name? Uh, uh, what's, what's his name? I'm blowing. Oh, Dan- oh, Daniel. Oh, da- oh no, it's um. Oh crap, Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz is. They haven't said it, but I, I'm pretty sure he's playing Blofeld. 
Oh, so God, it's going to be Blofeld in the winter out up in the mountains. You've got Bond with the turtleneck. I mean, I really think, that, you know, I think that, that that's what they're trying to do. So, so anybody, if you're interested in a, just a great action movie, go and seek out On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, I guess that's it. I think that'll wrap it up. Mike, where can people find you on the worlds of podcasting? Well, I do a show, again, called The Radio vs. the Martians. It's a panel discussion show. Myself and my co-host, Casey Doran, get a couple of our friends over. We hash out uh, pop culture things. You can check that out on RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Get all our back episodes. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, all those places. Awesome. Well, thanks again for doing the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for mentioning this one. This was a great movie to do. Uh, as soon as you mentioned, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about On His Majesty's Secret Service. So thanks so much for coming back. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And said so the, that's going to be it for me. You can find uh, the rest of the shows on the Fire and Water feed, which is at Fire and Water Podcast, blog.blogspot.com. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So uh, the Fire and Water Podcast will be back in Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, until then, enjoy this uh, commercial announcement, and I will see you in a few moments. Avalanche of action. Bigger, better, different. It's got to be when he's around. Vistas of sweeping splendor. Different. It must be so if he's in the picture. Fabulous beauties, all of them dolls, every one different. They've got to be when he's around. My name's Bond, James Bond. The new Bond. Suppose I were to kill you for a thrill. The different 007. Same statement. Diana Rake has the Comtessa, the different Bond woman. This one's got class and style. The villains with a difference. Telly Savalas as Blofeld, a new destructive force. With the difference. If my demands are not met, I shall proceed with the systematic extinction of whole species of cereals and livestock all over the world. Gabriel Fazzetti as Draco, a tough mafia daddy with a problem child. Papa, where's James? Don't worry, you'll join us soon. But we can't leave him. He doesn't need your help. I will not go without him. You'll have to. On the day you marry her, I'll give you a personal dowry of one million pounds. Oh, oh, 007 times more exciting than your wildest dreams. The creative skills of the cinema's master filmmakers. The 
hit the rush hour. If you think you know your bond, think again. This one's different. This one's got heart. I love you. I know I'll never find another girl like you. Will you marry me? Diamond of your life. Two one four. All the precious things love has in store. We have all the love. If that's all we have, you will find we need nothing more. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi, everyone. Now that we're uh, five episodes into the Film and Water podcast, I thought it was high time that we do a listener feedback section. So uh, here are some of the comments that we got. I keep saying we. In my brain, I keep saying we, even though it's this is just I. Uh, <laughs> that uh, the show, let's put it that way, got in for the uh, first four episodes. Uh, episode one, which was the Ex Machina episode, I got a, a comment from Count Drunkill, a.k.a. Ryan Daly, who does the Secret Origins podcast and the uh, uh, Dead Both and Spies podcast. He says, nice addition to the Fire and Water podcast. Family Rob, good show. Maybe in the future you can do an episode talking about the aliens and Highlander movies. Um, we did do the episode, me and Mike Gillis did the aliens episode of Fire and Water, which was sort of the inspiration for doing this show in the first place, because it was after that episode that I thought that maybe we had gone a little far afield of the show's original mission and maybe it needed to be its own show. So that was kind of the beginnings of, of Film and Water, though I didn't really know it. Highlander, I, I don't know. I, I'm just not that big a fan of the first movie. I know that's kind of heresy to nerds of, of my age, but I don't know. The first one just doesn't do much for me, and then the rest of them I just think are, are pretty worthless. So, But, you know, who knows? Maybe um, Shag and David Gutierrez, who I know are big fans of it, can, can guest all with me or something and teach me the error of my ways. Anyway, thanks for, for uh, sending in the comment, Ryan. Uh, regarding episode two, uh, which was Citizen Kane, got an email from Bradley Mann, and he says, My first lesson in spoilers came from this film. I knew what Rosebud was before I saw the film, thanks to a Peanut Sunday comic. I told my father the answer as we were watching it for the first time. He was very upset, because I was 11 and didn't know better. It was only a whole lot of yelling. My dad still holds a grudge against Snoopy, though I think it was Lucy who did the spoiler. I have come to appreciate the film since. However, I'm not sure it's the greatest film ever made. Maybe best at time, but ever? Call me a geek, but I think Star Wars gives it a run for best. I would argue that Star Wars is the best film ever made. Um... And yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to argue Citizen Kane is still the greatest film ever made. I mean, it's sort of saying that there's no, there's been no filmic achievements of that magnitude in the in the 70 years since, which clearly isn't true. So, you know, uh, people more erudite than me about filmmaking can, can make that argument. 
Um, I got a comment from, regarding the Scissors Can episode, from Buck Rowlett. Buck Rowlett. And he says, hello, Rob and Chag. Buck, just me. I am loving the new Film and Water podcast. Could use a little work on the name, though. I agree with that, Buck. Uh, I kind of wanted to keep the alliteration, but it, it, Film and Water really doesn't make any sense. Um, I guess I could use the Dissolve. Nobody's using that now, but who knows. And he says, anyway, he says, I do wish I had never been told that it was the greatest film ever made because I am sure I would have liked it more. No film can live up to that hype. I had avoided seeing it for years because watching the film was this pretentious thing to do. I'm glad I didn't get the chance to see it. I did get the chance to see it in class. Thankfully, the ending was not spoiled for me. We later watched part of Birth of a Nation, which I don't think any human should ever watch. Art should never trump human decency. I also had never seen Casablanca until film school either. I could definitely have that as a classic. Um, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, calling a film the greatest film ever made is, is just dooming it from the start because, yeah, then it seems like homework. Um, I genuinely love Citizen Kane. I enjoy watching it. I am glad that it's so well-renowned by film critics, but I, genu- I, I just love to watch it. I just uh, – we talked about it on the episode itself. It just unfolds in such an interesting way that um, I never get tired of watching it. Uh, Casablanca, I would argue, is probably the greatest movie ever made in terms of a film that appeals to everybody. Um, Birth of a Nation, I've never seen it. I still do kind of want to see it because it is historically significant. I mean, it's repulsive, but it is historically significant. And, you know, um, it was added to the, uh, the AFI film archives, like the National Library of Film, because it is significant dis- despite all of its uh, you know, checkered past. Uh, anyway, Buck, thanks so much for, for writing in. Uh, he ends with, can't wait for the next episode. Thank you. Uh, also regarding Citizen Kane, Mark Bicker writes and in a bunch of emails asking me about, isn't uh, the animated Transformers movie, Orson Welles' final film, not someone to love? Um, it seems to go back and forth. Some Wikipedia says that um, Transformers was done last, even though it was ended up coming out first. So I, I've always read that Someone to Love was his last thing that he ever did. Um, but I could be wrong. Maybe I just don't want to believe that he ended his life doing a voiceover for Transformers. But it doesn't really matter because, you know, Orson did a lot of, first name with him, Orson, did a lot of crap work because he wanted to pay for his other films. And you know what? If he made a couple of bucks off Transformers um, – that helped fund, you know, other side of the wind or whatever, Don Quixote or what other projects that he wanted to work on, then more power to him. He did a lot worse stuff than Transformers, the movie to pay for things. So, um, you know, who can say, I like to think that his last, you know, his last thing is someone to love. And in any case, his last appearance in, um, on screen is someone to love. And that's good enough for me. Um, regarding episode three, which was the uh, Blues Brothers episode, Count Druncula again, Ryan wrote in, says, I love listening to your unbridled joy and affection for the Blues Brothers because it's one of my favorite movies. My parents are from Chicago. Even though I grew up in farm country an hour outside the city, we went into Chicago all the time to see my Irish and Polish relatives who all speak just like Ackroyd and Belushi in the movie. And I'm talking about the early 80s here. So the looks, the sounds, everything in the movie felt very real and familiar. Like Mike, uh, Mike Gillis, I can't see a Pier 1 Imports, although it's not like I see a lot of them anymore without saying the name aloud in a deadpan observational manner. <laughs> this place has got everything. Uh, Chris Franklin, my co-host from the Power Records podcast and does his own show, the Supermates podcast, wrote in and said, love, love, love this movie. 
Once upon a time, it seemed TBS only showed the Blues Brothers and the Beastmaster 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, even though I own it on DVD, if it's on, I end up watching the rest of it no matter where I come in. I normally don't do that with movies. Yeah, I think the Blues Brothers has been been replaced by the Shawshank Redemption. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was one of those movies that I caught on cable. I didn't see it in the theater. I was only about eight or nine. I was probably too young for my parents to take me to that. But I watch it on cable just ad nauseum, and it just it does hold up. Uh, that was a fun show to do with Mike because we do just love that movie so much. Um, Aaron Moss wrote in about the episode, and he said, I want to drop you a line to tell you this was a great episode. The Blues Brothers is one of the favorite movies I love to watch every time it's on. See? Everybody, everybody loves the Blues Brothers. Uh, we got an email from Jeff. We. I keep saying we. Jeff Nettleton. He says, hi, guys. Again, just me. Love the podcast. One of my all-time favorite comedies. You talked about how people from Chicago consider this their film. I'm from downstate Illinois, born and raised, but we embraced it just as much. You wouldn't believe the cheering that goes up when the Illinois State Police cars go crashing into one another on the highway. It is like the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl in the last three seconds. We hated those guys in that area, in that era. Speed traps. One point, though. That mall was in decline before the movie, which is why they were able to film there and smash the place. The chase was the result of the decline, not the other way around. Good to know. Thanks, Jeff. And then in regards to uh, Spielberg in 1941 and John Landis, Landis was a great comedy director. He understood comedic timing. Spielberg doesn't. His films have funny moments, but he too, but he is too repressed to really embrace comedy. Landis isn't afraid to give it everything, which is about what comedy needs. On a similar level, I think that is why Spielberg has never really produced a message film like a Richard Attenborough or an Oliver Stone. The closest he gets to controversial is Munich, or The Color Purple, and he was rather afraid to fully embrace the book in the regards of The Color Purple. He's a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. Um, I could maybe argue a little bit here and there about, I mean, Schindler's List, is that middle-of-the-road, or, or maybe Private Ryan, but, but I see what you're saying, yeah. I think Spielberg's average radar just tends to go in down the middle to everybody, and I think that that's true. I could never picture him producing... Or directing, I mean, the Blues Brothers, or Animal House, or just anything that wild. Yeah, I agree. I think he's just he's just a little too reserved to do that. So thanks, Jeff, for that email. And then episode four, which was the Batman Superman double feature episode, Chris wrote right in, even though he was on that episode, uh, regarding the Batman segment from Andy Capella. She says, "Andy, your dad was one cool dude. I couldn't help but think of me and my son because I take I took him to see Batman Begins in a drive-in when he was four. I know, I know, it's pretty dark." So we went to a drive-in where things are a bit, less, bit, bit less intense than a closed theater, and I hit his eyes a lot, and he would have been crushed, but he would have been crushed if he had missed a Batman movie. <laughs> That's a, you're a good dad, Chris. I think everybody knows that by now. Luke Dobb um, left a message on Facebook. He said, Work, working on a pretty blah task, but it's okay. I'm listening to Rob Kelly, Andy Capella, and Chris Frank. talk about some of my favorite superhero movies. Thank you, Luke. And then we got an email from Jose Rivera who is a longtime nuclear sub, and I think this is his first time he's written into the show, which is great. He says, hey, Rob, I listened to the latest episode of the Film & Water podcast with the Batman and Superman talk, and it brought back a few good memories. I was six when the Tim Burton Batman movie came out. I'm so old. I remember the hype before it even at an early age. You couldn't go anywhere without running into something Batman. My parents took me and my sisters to see it the first weekend it came out, and let me tell you, that was a packed theater on a Saturday afternoon. I remember loving the movie, but even more surprising, so did my dad. He bought the Danny Elfman soundtrack shortly thereafter and listened to that thing constantly. I remember getting the video for Christmas along with the Batwing for my Toy Biz Batman action figure. 
Funnily enough, what I remember most about the video was the Diet Coke ad with Alfred in the Warner Brothers catalog commercial with Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck that played before the movie on the tape. That was a big event as a kid, and while I'm more of a Superman fan, I'm glad my parents took me. I still get the chills at the end when Commissioner Gordon turns on the bat signal and Elfman's finale score takes over and builds up to that amazing shot of Batman on the roof staring at the bat signal. That is a great end, and that, that final scene is really, really um, very, very powerful. I, while I was watching it again in anticipation of this episode, I remember thinking, boy, this, this is a really great ending. Anyway, uh, Jose continues regarding Superman. I think because of Richard Donner, I know what the word verisimilitude meant before any college course I took that could have explained it. What's great about Superman the movie is there's an honest sincerity and heart to it. Yeah, that is absolutely true. That is, again, that's why I love that movie so much. Thank you, Jose. And then uh, some other people, uh, mostly nuclear subs, wrote in to say how much they've been enjoying Film and Water and also volunteering to be on the show, which is a lot of fun. Uh, those guys include Michael Bailey, Derek William Crabb, Mike Gillis, David Ace Gutierrez, Tim Wallace. And I think there were others, but a lot of people have been writing me personally on Facebook about the show, and I just haven't been able to sort of coordinate all that stuff. So if you want to send me a message about Film and Water, please use the email for the Fire and Water feed, which is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. That'll be the easiest way for me to sort of cull all this and put it together and make sure that you get read on the show, because I do plan to do listener feedback segments pretty regularly uh, as best I can. Um, so I think that's going to be it for listener feedback. Before I sign off, though, I do want to mention, between um, me and Mike Gillis recording our comments on, on His Majesty's Secret Service and me recording this segment, they have released the second trailer for Spectre, the new James Bond movie, which comes out in November. Now, I am super excited about it. Uh, I love Daniel Craig as James Bond. He's my second favorite Bond. Casino Royale is one of my top five favorite Bond movies, so I'm totally in on this. Um, but I even got more excited over the second trailer. I think it looks really cool. It gives you more of the, the, the story. It shows you more of the supporting characters, Monica Bellucci and Leah Sadu and some of the others. I'm really excited about it. And I have a theory based on no inside information, no inside information other than just what I saw in the trailer. But this is going to be my theory. And if I'm wrong, then this will be preserved in digital format for all to hear uh, in perpetuity. But I'm betting that Leah Sadu, or I guess that's how you pronounce her name, is going to end up playing James Bond's daughter. There's something about her scene, her one scene in the trailer, or maybe one or two scenes, but her one scene with Daniel Craig, that there's something about it that makes me think that she's going to be revealed as James Bond's daughter. James Bond's daughter. Um, partly because the other woman in the movie, the main Bond girl, is Monica Bellucci, who kind of got noticed at the time for being an older Bond girl, really a Bond woman. She's Daniel Craig's age, which means she's old enough to have a daughter, Leah Sadu's age. Uh, also, in the trailer, we see no scenes of Daniel Craig romancing Leah Sadu. Now, even though you might say that's a little icky because of the age, that's never stopped James Bond movies before. So, I don't know. I think that's going to be the curve they're going to throw at us. But we will find out in November. And if I'm wrong, I will cop to it, much like I did. I got wrong about the whole Aquaman in Dawn of Justice thing. But I, I don't know. I think that's where they're headed. But anyway, even if I am wrong, I'm super excited over Spectre. It looks like a great movie. Christoph Waltz, as perhaps Blofeld, is just super awesome. So, um, it ought to be a lot of fun. And I will absolutely come back and do a Film and Water episode on Spectre when the time comes. 
Uh, so I guess that's going to be it. We're going to wrap it up. Again, thanks so much for everybody for paying attention to this show. This was really meant to be just like a little bonus thing, which is why it's like never taking the place of fire and water on a Sunday. This is always like a bonus thing. Um, it's just kind of a little idea that I have. I love talking about movies just so much. And uh, I'm glad people out there are enjoying it. So, again, thanks for the support. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I don't know. Until the next episode, uh, go watch some movies and let me know what you think. Or something. I still got to figure out a, uh, an exit phrase for the show. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Bye. Forget it forever.